Hi there, and thanks for downloading another episode. This is more of a public service announcement. Um, uh, Saad and I were at uh, an event recently, and uh, we're walking around sort of the play area. Uh, this was actually at Test Fest, is where it happened. A lot of fun. We met a lot of great people, did a lot of interviews uh, for the podcast, and met a lot of really nice people. But we're, we're in the play area, just walking around, just walking around. We're not doing anything we're just walking around people watching and uh this guy this guy comes up to us and says um hey uh are you guys are you guys gonna play apparently this person had, had saw her uh, presentation earlier and was like you guys you guys gonna play uh no no we're not gonna play we're just, we're just walking around we're just people watching okay i i'd really i'd really like to, to watch watch you guys play i'd like i'd like that okay well we're we're you know we're not gonna we're not gonna play here we're just you know we're people watching right now so okay um are you can play later so i can i can come back late no no we're not we're not gonna you know back in our room we will but we're not gonna do anything oh you're, you're gonna be in your room yes yes we're gonna be in our room. I'd, I'd really it would be really great to see you guys to guys right guys play oh well you know thanks really appreciate it and this went on and it, it, and it happened again later same person and it happened a third time, and it was. I don't. This isn't a public service. I think anyone listening knows what you know. What's kind of awkward about that? But um, nice person, nice person. Just a little. I don't know what the word is, but you know, I don't know. Um, I'm sure it was just you know, you know the the vibe of the scene. You know of the of the. You know, of the event, they're just really—they're happy to watch. I guess odd. Uh, this episode is with uh, Saskia. This is someone who uh, a listener emailed and said, "You've got to have Saskia on. Just you've got to, you've got to. She's great." And uh, we did have a great conversation. Here it is out of Denver. Take a listen. Well, first of all, your name is Saskia. Pronounced- so I, I saw it, and I've, I've been to, to Saskatchewan many times, and of course I wanted to say Sask. Yep, a lot of Canadians do that, and a lot of uh, a lot of Midwestern Americans. So what, what's the genesis of the name? Is that, I mean, is just your birth name, uh, or is there a... No, my birth name is Bambi Sunshine. That's a great name. <laughs> um, <laughs> Saskia was uh, Rembrandt's wife, and uh, his friends had very unflattering things to say about her. She was... Um, unpleasant and cranky and nobody had anything nice to say and my theory on that is that he had a bunch of freeloader friends that were always over expecting to be waited on hand and foot and that probably made her a bit cranky yeah Saskia is a pretty common european name it's like susan or jennifer do you have connections to europe um i am a kind of a european scandinavian mutt and I did live in England for a few years. My dad was in the Air Force, so we sort of lived all over the place. And I was born in Germany. So only once has anybody said that my English was very good. So I, I was pretty pleased with that because I've worked so hard on it. What, uh, what part of this Scandinavian culture do you connect with most? Norway. My dad's uh, family is from Norway. You're talking to a three-quarters Norwegian? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so I've I've enjoyed Lutefisk. I've enjoyed, or if anyone can enjoy Lutefisk, I've enjoyed it. 
uh, uh, lefse is a staple yeah, in my, my life. My dad makes lefse. He he made it when he was in high school and uh, took it around Wollaston, North Dakota, in a little radio flyer wagon and sold it. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's such a holy crap. That's a small world. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I was a friend of my mistress, Santa, and she gave me a lefse paddle that I still have hanging in the dungeon. Holy shit, that is crazy. Yeah, she went into a store a few years ago when she was back visiting. And uh, just she didn't know it was a lefse paddle. She didn't grow up eating lefse for some reason. And uh, she bought this paddle that she just thought would be great for a dungeon thing. And the uh, woman at the store said, oh, you're going to make some lefse then? And she said, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I do sometimes pull out for the amusement of my friends uh, a dominatrix from Fargo uh, persona. Uh, Mistress 11.30 p.m. because midnight's just too late. <laughs> I introduced myself as Hilda Lundegaard, a.k.a. Mistress Mid- Ele- no, Mistress 11.30 p.m. because it's just too damn late. And talk about having the Jay Wiseman fall out to the Elks Lodge, which we have to wait for the Girl Scouts to move out of. And we got a bride by buying all their cookies. And we had that Jay Wiseman fall out, and he just stood around and told us how we can't do nothing. And we looked at each other because we already don't do nothing. And he didn't need to tell us not to do that. <laughs> and how my husband Elmer asked me for a golden shower once and I said remember what happened when we got too drunk and we peed in your boots and he said no not like that and uh, so this is like a big only and Lena joke yeah. one long oh, this is great and this is great try, yeah the only and Lena jokes are awesome but I tried out uh, Mistress 11.30pm on my dad he did not see what was so funny about it so does your dad know about what you're he about? He does. Your he actually came to DomCon one year with uh, his wife, and, and the whole family was in on the prank. They pranked me at DomCon a few years ago when I was there to teach suturing and stapling. And uh, Mr. San, the other Norwegian <laughs> from Denver, uh, was also out there teaching blood play. So we were the more, most um, benign. I wasn't bald yet at the time, so we were the most... Uh, non-glamorous people there teaching the more, most scary hardcore stuff um not the standard model stuff at all and uh my dad and his wife and his sister who lives out in la all decided uh that they were going to surprise me and, and punk me at domcon and they talked about different ways to do that whether they would um show up at my class and sit there and ask questions from the front row and then i would have had to then I would have had to win that game of awkward chicken, which my family is really good at. We play awkward chicken a lot. <laughs> and uh, they talked about dressing up in hotel staff uniforms. And what they finally did is just uh, my aunt waited for me and my partner at the time in the hotel bar. And uh, the bartender kept sending over these annoying notes from somebody saying, oh, boy, baby, you sure are hot. And I'm thinking, whoever that is has no idea what kind of conference this is. Um, so I'd pass them on to my aunt and say, I think this was probably for you. And she'd, no, I think it's for you for sure. And, um, then, uh, after a couple of notes had gone by and we had a martini, um, we were sitting at, at the edge of a bar and these two old people came by and just rammed right into us. And my partner at the time was a punk and, uh, and, I can go off pretty easily if somebody messes with me in public and pushes up my buttons just right. I'll hit that Norwegian berserker mode. And and the first thought to cross my mind is who's going to have the credibility here if I pick a fight um, with these people that just bammed into us. And I said, these people are old enough to be my puh. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) And then they just started laughing. Um, They thought it was hysterically funny. You should see the look on your face. Um, So, and just then, Mistress Precious from... uh, 
Austin. My dad's been um, concerned for years about what my retirement plan is and, uh, you know, how you can age in an industry like this. And I have told him I'm just going to make really nice haikus on cardboard signs and, and try and get dry diapers that way, which he doesn't think <laughs> is very funny. Um, but Mistress Precious is a few years older than me, and she came by dressed in full latex um, and looking absolutely stunning. And uh, with that little southern girl bow in the back of her hair, she stopped by, and I said, Mistress Precious, I'd like to introduce you to my father and his wife and my aunt. And she did the perfect southern charm thing. She sat there and talked me up one side and down the other to my dad um, and just made him glow and uh, about how wonderful I am and what an excellent instructor I am and how great my classes were and how captivating I am and told him that I'm famous and all this other stuff and all, all these things that my dad, you know, didn't have, hadn't heard from anybody because, wow, would he? And uh, like, of course, she yeah. just left him uh, standing a couple feet taller. And I just, I owe her a hand job for that or, or a car wash <laughs> or whatever the hell she wants, shine up every bit of latex that she's got. Cause she left my dad with the impression that I'm some kind of rock star. And, and that was absolutely awesome. So. Well, you are, I mean, let's talk about Denver because you, uh, whenever several people have, have mentioned that I should have you on the show before, because uh, they said that you're, you're just like the fulcrum of of Denver, Fulcrum is that the right one? The wheelhouse. You're the you're the you're you're the brains behind the operation <laughs> of of Denver, and um, and several people have mentioned this. And of course, I don't. You know, I'm not involved in the Denver scene, but um, it sounds like the Denver scene is pretty is pretty big. Considering we do, we have a great you know, scene here. It's yeah. really active. And and I may have been a lot more instrumental in it a few years ago, but. Um, uh, like when I first started up my dungeon, but it's it's so varied right now. There's classes on on pretty much anything: classes, munches, meets, uh, support groups, whatever you like. Pretty much any night of the week, and and it's so different than what it was when I got into the scene in the mid '90s, where there was like one, possibly two. You know, one party a month uh, was it was it a pep thing and it was meeting at a welding shop called a play in the fields of the weird. And that was absolutely beautiful. I still have a rebar spider web that they had had up on the wall there. Um, so it's nice to have a piece of Denver's kink history on the wall in my dungeon. It's absolutely, I just used to stand there and drool at it and, and try not to touch myself too, obviously. So what do you, what do you attribute the, the, the growth to? Is it just, uh, people become being more, uh, accepting or is it a is it a matter of uh, I think access, you know the internet I think the internet is is a huge part of it um, I got in just kind of before the internet started to be anything um, I had the first independent website in Denver and I still have mrsaskia.com although there's uh, several Mr. Saskias around the world now I think four or five I emailed several of them about five or six years ago and none of them wanted to form a Mr. Saskia club even with a theme song I told them we, we could find a rhyme that you know, something that would run with Saskia and uh, none of them responded at all, which I thought was rude. Um, it would be like the Santa Claus, the Santa cons they get, yeah. you know, when all the Santas get together, exactly. all the Saskias can get right. together. I thought that that would be really fun. They couldn't go for like Lady Saskia or Goddess Saskia. Everybody wants to be Mistress Saskia. Like, okay, fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, what was the question? 
Well, we're just talking about oh, the Denver scene yeah. in general and how it started think, and how it I grew. I think it, it really took off. I mean, people used to uh, use just Yahoo groups to advertise. And if you would get online and you'd start searching around for any kind of kink stuff and related it to Denver in your search terms, then you would eventually come across some kind of a Yahoo group. Um, at uh, the time I got into the scene, there was just the, the two things a month and there was no dedicated play space. Then somebody opened up a club called The Labyrinth. And, uh, and that was a pretty cool thing for a while. And then that got shut down for, for some kind of silly stuff. The, the city that it was in used some kind of a loophole and some regulations to, to kind of shut stuff down. But, um, it was definitely a loophole. And, uh, then other people kind of started up a couple of other clubs and some people ran another one for a little bit. Um, and it was still pretty much, um, relegated to just things that were happening in the clubs. There was a couple of munches here and there, but not much happening. And then when FetLife came around, um, you just saw this growth spurt um, that I think we're still, as kink culture, having to adapt to because it's it's something that's allowed people in smaller cities to have some kind of access to each other with more anonymity, where you know they can't always meet in anybody's house because word would spread a little bit too quickly. Um, sure. So Fat Life allows people to connect in ways that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. I think there's also a lot of downsides to it, and, and the anonymity works. Uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword there, um, since people are able to out uh, friends, neighbors, coworkers, whatever. It's pretty easy in smaller towns to find out where somebody lives or where somebody works. Uh, so there's been problems in in. Um, Minnesota, I, uh, some, a couple small communities there with somebody who had been going pretty rampant, and I don't think that they ever did catch who the person was that was doing that. But um, it's as far as growth in the community goes, there's it has allowed people to really um, get into whatever their specific kink is. If you're into puppy play, there's uh, puppy in, puppies in the mountains that's once a year here in Denver, which is awesome. I haven't been able to go to it yet, but I absolutely adore puppy and kitty play, pet play of any kind. Um, we don't have any kind of an age play um, conference here in Colorado just yet, but we have a funny farm that we do at my dungeon uh, on a quarterly basis. And we just started doing something called hard candy, which is funny farm with a little bit more of an R-rated taste. And uh, the littles that are into... Um, age play with uh, with with a little bit more sexuality are way ahead of the curve in terms of their comfort levels, and the bigs uh, like me are a, a lot more hesitant to kind of cross the line into more sexuality with the little. So it's really it's really funny to see um, which littles are more dominant and which littles are kind of uh, are more comfortable with sexuality and, and wanting to be molested, and <laughs> it's it's funny to see the people that are you know the bigs or the dominants. Um, and I'm not sure if there are any bigs that are submissives. It's, it's something that I'm still curious about, but, uh, that's interesting. I've never thought about yeah, that. Having to negotiate with a little and tell them that as much as I would like to play with them, I don't know that I'm really ready yet to do anything kind of sexual with age play. I, I'm going to ha- if they're going to have to take it really slowly with me and them telling me that, yeah, all their bigs are really hesitant that way is, uh, uh, has been a source of fascination for me. Like, why am I so uncomfortable with this when I've got, you know, an adult woman spread out over my lap or an adult man, they still look physically adult to me. And then, you know, I'm sitting there looking at the teddy bear in their hand and, uh, while they're getting a spanking and, and kind of, uh, it touches me in my no, no place. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's, I know a lot of people who struggle with that. 
Um, and there's a, I mean, you mentioned FetLife. There are a lot of groups that deal with this on FetLife, and that's there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of negative press about FetLife lately, uh-huh. and. Yeah, I contributed a little bit to that and then got some backlash from that. So that was interesting. Do you mind going into what you mean by oh, that? Um, the Atlantic Monthly had a piece recently, The Atlantic, about uh, um, about how FetLife will not allow victims to name their abusers. Right. Um, or, or people that they say have assaulted them. And, um, and they... Um, and I got in there and, and people were saying uh, a lot of really stupid things in the comment sections, which I should know better than to read. But I was going in there to agree and to talk about some of the responses that various communities have made to not being able to name accusers, but trying to find other methods of um, dealing with predators in communities. And I had spent the last couple of years uh, working on that in my own community on finding ways to support victims and to get consent culture talked about. And then somebody that I had dated briefly named me as a predator. So um, I have not been able to get FetLife to take down some comments made about me because um, I had been very vocal on the Atlantic Monthly or the Atlantic website, whichever it was, about um, FetLife uh, allowing people to name their accusers. And when I got named and asked them to take down the um, posts about me because they were in violation of terms of use and said, I'd like the same consideration that other people get um, in terms of terms of use being respected. Uh, they just ignore my emails. So it's um, fairly, I don't know if ironic is the right word or whether it's some kind of a punishment or whether I'm just being paranoid, but uh, that's really, I mean, I don't know what the right answer is to this yeah, question. Me either. Because it's, it's I, I really appreciate people having the option to, you know, we, we have to be able to talk about predators and consent culture and and we have to be able to protect ourselves somehow. And I had been the most vocal person about saying that the uh, the incidents of false reports are are so statistically null as to be pretty much negligible and and within days i was named as a predator and by by people that i disagree quite vehemently with um and i was not able to you know for for people who were advising me on on pr were telling me that i should you know i responded quite angrily at first which is uh, I responded in the stereotypical way that uh, uh, somebody who'd been a perpetrator would respond. Um, and I understood right then, like, what the emotional spaces that people will get in when they are accused like that. And I, ah, like, I get it. I took the bait and I responded about as badly as you possibly could. So anything that I said after that was going to be, um, yeah, completely, <laughs> completely useless because I had come out um, doing exactly the kind of things that I had been teaching people for the last two years not to do. But I responded out of a place of of uh, panic and fear and anger and and confusion. So, well, how else would you mean? I mean, that's that's the natural response, right? In that situation, I don't know. Yeah, I in in, in our society, we've we've said. We've we've agreed. At least that's what our laws are supposed to be set up. They don't always work out this way. But we've we've basically set up our laws that that it is worse to to uh, lock up and throw away someone who's innocent than to than to throw everyone who's might be innocent in just just in case. Right. right? That's what the beyond a reasonable doubt mm-hmm. means. I don't know. No, I don't know what the answer is to this question me, because yeah, I can either. empathize with both. Right. right? I've been a, a, an advocate for, you know, social justice warrior, North American fearless hippie kind of stuff for 
my entire adult life, I've done homeless shelters and I've done street outreach and I've worked hotlines and I've done support groups and I've, you know, um, run neighborhood centers, done community organizing. Um, all that, you paid your dues. You know, I've, I've learned a whole lot from things like that. And, um, and the social work stuff is, is still where my heart is. So, um, so the, yeah, it's, it's very difficult for, for me, uh, to be on this side of it and to know that I have done such an excellent job teaching people the right way to respond to victims that when I'm accused myself, there is not a single thing that I can say that will not sound exactly like a stereotypical predator. Right. So. Man, I'm sorry that happened. That really sucks. Well, um, I, I don't know exactly how to respond to it still it's a little bit ongoing um so i'm not sure emotionally how i'm supposed to respond to it or um you know i i clearly disagree with the person who was the primary one saying anything but they had sought out a whole lot of people who over the years have had various difficulties with me and um and things got very very political unfortunately so it's uh i i it's been quite educational to me about um you know the the People are talking about um, how anybody that's accused is still a person, and that's something that I was struggling with even before I became accused was, all right, so the people that have have violated consent, how do they get to a point where they realize that they violated consent, and does that make them 100% a bad person? I, I happen to be a bit of an ambiguity fetishist, and anytime there's anything that's sort of ambiguous, it gets my attention, and it makes me wonder, you know, like when you've got a loose tooth, I just have to worry at it, and um, try and figure out how we could do educational things so that people understand what a consent violation looks like, what it looks like when you're pushing a boundary, what it looks like when you're applying pressure to somebody, and how can we still keep kink hot and sexy when a lot of the stuff does. You know, like the um, person who had accused me had also said that uh, they don't like it when dominants ask them how they're doing. They like to be told what to do. They like to be told what's going to happen. And they like to be told how they feel about it as it's happening. And I had safe worded on that. I said that I would absolutely not agree to that. So um, how you can do education around people uh, when we are playing with power and we're playing with consent and we do consensual non-consent and, um, and all those things get get very loaded, and and when you're combining that with the rhetoric that goes along with consent culture, and combining that with the the sort of things that mimic abuse uh, in vanilla land in BDSM culture, it, it all gets very difficult to talk about. I don't think that we have the right kind of words yet. I don't think that we have a common vernacular yet so that we can discuss it. And some of that came up a couple of years ago when I first approached the Rape Crisis Center here and tried to get training for their volunteers so that we could have uh, victims in our community have resources um, outside of our community that they could go to if they got assaulted in any way or had recovered memories or, you know, whatever they needed to do. Um, we needed people outside of our community because we don't have a rape crisis center for the BDSM community. I was it for the last two years. Um, and I took every report and I did every bit of support and everything. But when I went to um, the rape crisis center here, uh, most of the staff that we talked to independently, me and a few other volunteers, uh, were very receptive. But when it came to the director, and um, she was completely against it. She didn't want to hear anything about fantasy rape. She said there's no such thing as rape play. And she refused to discuss it any further or to allow any of us to speak with anybody on staff further 
um, unless I agree to sit down with her and a district attorney and a chief of police. And since I am running a business and as a sex worker, um, you know, that would put me in a pretty difficult position. Yeah. Man, that's tough because, I mean, it's – it really – it really frustrates. It's really, I'm sure, it's even more frustrating for you. Just, just me as a listener to that. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's really hard to hear someone trying to do the right thing, but keeps getting basically every system possible pushing away from this it. This is. I'm trying uh, to see it from a bigger picture, which is uh, has always helped me in the past. When I get a little too bogged down by detail, it gets very frustrating, and, it, and I take it way too personally. So. Um, having studied political science and, and German stupidly um, in Colorado as <laughs> college um, political science kind of helped me uh, be a little bit just less depressed about the worldview, but getting perspective on how we're in a transitional period right now, because the community, our culture has changed so much because of fat life and the internet. Um, we are in a real big transitional period right now, and we have had so much more of an influx. We no longer can um, have gatekeepers that, um, that screen people individually like we used to. I, I was interviewed by one person uh, who was highly respected in the scene back then. When I first got into the scene, I was invited over to her house, didn't realize it was an interview. Apparently, I presented well enough, even though I was a dirty, bad sex worker, pro-dominatrix. Um, she decided that I was sincere enough that I could, you know, play in the reindeer games. And uh, and that's how I was vetted by one person who made that decision to allow me in. That's not the case anymore. All you have to do anymore is, uh, you know, you don't have to you don't have to be screened by anybody, really. If you can get the address to a munch or you can, you know, be brought to a party by somebody else, that's kind of it. And I think that uh, we're going to have to figure out some things and we're going to have to formalize some things before. um, And nobody wants to let go of the power is part of the problem. Every time somebody opens up their own little venue where they start having house parties and they become house of this, house of that, everybody needs to be king or queen of their own castle and they need to make all the rules and they don't want to hear anybody else tell them who they can and can't have at their parties. So when we have known predators who've raped people at gunpoint, um, who who've done some, there's uh, one serial predator that three or four years ago had had 12 to 14 uh, complaints against him to, you know, to nobody in any kind of position of power. Um, and nobody would, would use the R word. Nobody would even say rape a few years ago. Uh, because, and that's nothing that I, I think of uh, my time in the scene as growing up. When I first entered the scene, I was, you know, sort of an infant. But I think the entire time that I was in the kink scene, it hasn't been until the last couple of years that I've heard anybody discuss sexual assault or anybody discuss rape. It has just been scenes that went wrong. Um, Jay Wiseman was telling me that uh, he actually he wrote on Tribe.net a few years ago about a woman friend of his that uh, thanked him after he did a rope scene with her for not fucking her. And he said, well, you you said that you didn't want sex. And she said, yeah, but most guys won't listen to that. So he started asking around, like, how how often is it that women will, and she didn't use the R word either. Um, she just said, thought that that was something that would happen. And he was saying, why would you keep doing this if, if one of the risks is that there's a high likelihood that you're going to be sexually assaulted? And she said, you know, when you have this need to play, you just, you know, you just accept that as a risk. 
And he thought that that, that was aberrant, obviously, and it is aberrant. But there will be people, and, and this happens to men as well, people who are just so desperate to play that they will abandon a whole lot of common sense, um, which starts to get into the territory of victim blaming. But when you have an unmet sexual need, and I saw this when I ran an adult support group for bisexuals who were coming out back in the 90s, people who are coming out and have some repressed sexuality or something that they haven't been able to explore will have all these adult resources um, that they can use to access the things that they want. And they have the same um, maturation process that you do when you're an adolescent. But as an adolescent, you have a lot more speed bumps and you have a lot more things to put the skids on, like you have curfews and you have parents and, you, you know, you, you, but when you're an adult, you have alcohol and you have more drugs and you have a car and you can um, take days off of work to go do incredibly stupid things with with people that you don't know and you can travel across the country to to do like uh, an abduction scene with people that you have no idea whether they're going to be safe or not and you don't have a way of checking up on them so we have access to a lot more things that are very dangerous and uh, we have very little access to the legal system. We're very marginalized that way. And if you talk to uh, people at the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, they have things on their website that uh, talk about DAs that they have spoken with around the country who they present cases to. And they say, if you have um, three cases and they're all very obviously sexual assaults, they ask the DAs uh, which ones would they prosecute. And they had uh, two of the three cases or three of the four, whichever it was, um, one out of the group that they presented had a kink aspect to it, and the DAs pretty categorically said that they would not uh, prosecute the one that involved rape, even though there were witnesses and evidence and everything, or the one that involved um, BDSM, rather, because the issues of consent would be too difficult to to discuss with a jury. I'm curious about – so what you just described, the problem – part of the problem is that the people who are – who would be respected uh-huh. – uh, in 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 the in the legal sense or in the in the legal community, the people who know about this stuff, right. uh, there there I guarantee there are a few judges who are into kink who could speak very well about this stuff, but they can't be outed. Right. right? And there's also DAs who are into kink that can't be outed. And in Denver, um, it came out uh, in the news a year ago, two years ago, that the Denver District Attorney's Office turns down 71% of rape cases every year. That's cases that reports have been made and the police have done enough of an investigation on it to find that there it, there is uh, merit to, to pressing uh, charges and they bring those to the DA and the DA turns away 71% of those. And that is not even including any kind of a kink element. So when people in the kink world have tried to make reports, they have been lost. And that's when guns have been involved. When somebody has made a report and said, this person held a gun to their head and said that they would shoot themselves. If I told anybody, the police have still lost the report and then failed to pursue it. Have you ever thought about running for office? (laughs) I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I am. My popularity, my, uh, um, what is it? My polls are, my numbers in the polls are a little bit low at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, is that um, even though your numbers in the polls might be a a little low at the moment, it's. uh, I'm bald and I'm weird. I don't know if I would do well as city councilman or anything. (laughs) Why are you shooting so low? I'm saying mayor, you know, or what? Oh, there, there are. I think this is. It's a prime case of, of, is all you have to do. And this is the same thing with my wife. She'll be talking about something. I'll be like, oh, I wish you could run for office because 
and there are a lot of people I know who are in the kink scene like this, is that it, all it takes is one brave person who just say, yeah, I'm kinky, so what? Let's talk about, back on the issues and just start talking, right? It's like uh, there are certain people when they start talking, everything else is irrelevant, right? There have been plenty of politicians where this has happened. Now, I don't know how many have been out as kinky, right? But uh, seriously, consider it. Consider it. I'm not. A, I'm not. A, I'm not. I wouldn't be one of your constituents. So obviously, <laughs> I'm an outsider. But you can run my campaign. Uh, th- sure. There we go. I'll be your candidate. Um, I worked. Th- I worked just, with Pat Schroeder when I was uh, getting my one of my undergrads was in poli sci, and Pat Schroeder was absolutely amazing. She was in the Congress for so many years, and she was on uh, the U.S. Military Affairs Committee. And I, growing up on military bases, that was fantastic for me because not only did I get to work the phones and respond to messages and, and emails and things when Amendment 2, which was uh, uh, an amendment in Colorado that was actually passed by the voters to deny uh, basic rights to any kind of anybody that was gay, lesbian, bisexual, um, when that was was actually overturned by the Supreme Court here in Colorado. Um, but I was at Pat Schroeder's office when that was happening, and also I got to... Um, get complaints from people around the world who were living on military bases and were being sexually assaulted or otherwise harmed by people on military bases. And they had gone through the chains of command that, that uh, they could go through and were just um, stymied. They were stonewalled all over the place. So I got to be this little, you know, 25 year old uh, on the phone, other end of the phone, talking to base commanders in various places and having them call me ma'am and uh, me asking like, so could you explain to me why this person has not gotten any kind of redress in the situation and having them sit there and hem and haw and scuff their feet and kick dirt and stuff was really, really gratifying. Um, And I had so much respect for Pat Schroeder because she actually got results and the person that who uh, who took over after her, Diana DeGette, has been amazing. But I also saw that uh, Pat Schroeder had one of those uh, physical constitutions where she only needed three or four hours of sleep a night, and she could just she was running on fumes all the time, and the woman still had endless energy. That is not me. I could sleep for ten or twelve hours a day, and uh, I would. You know, I have a lot of limits on the things that I would really like to do just for the community, you know, in terms of education and role plays and and services that I would love to set up and um, connections that I would like to make with social service organizations and things like that. There's so many things I'd like to do to help write grants and all that kind of stuff. And I just physically am not capable of That's why if you're mayor, you'd have a staff, you see, you'd have, <laughs> it's, well, I'm just saying. Yeah. Having some exposure to to politics, I I just know how absolutely draining it is, and I'm already in the public eye enough that uh, that every little every little thing that I do will get hyper examined, and I really don't need that kind of crap. Well, it's Denver's loss. <laughs> um, is your you what is the the laws for kink? You have a dungeon. You have a dungeon space. Colorado's laws What's, are pretty awesome. Um, I I really? did Colorado's laws in terms of uh, sex work are really really specific, which is nice because it is very specific about where you can put your hands, where you can't put your hands, where what you can do with foreign objects and not. So uh, it makes us very easy for us to to run a professional dungeon to work as pro doms because it's it's not 
um, vague like it is in some places where if money is exchanged, it doesn't matter if both people have, are fully clothed. Like in Arizona, if you flog or tie somebody up and money is exchanged, that's considered prostitution. Um, I did ask a sex crimes detective that I spoke to a couple of years ago very specifically what the laws are in Colorado in terms of consent to assault. And she looked and looked and looked. Uh, we were on the phone for a good hour or so, and she said that um, really what was going to have to happen since she couldn't find anything in any of the statutes that she was looking up and about uh, consent to be assaulted um, is that there would have to be a test case of some time, and we would need a constitutional law attorney to handle it because it would ha- it would be a precedent setter, and that would be the kind of thing that would determine what we could do um, in in the state uh, that would be legal or not. There are some states that specifically uh, prohibit uh, private citizens from engaging in any kind of sadomasochistic behavior. And if there are people, I think, I think Minnesota is it Minnesota, Wisconsin. Um, if there are people who are observing anybody engaged in sadomasochistic behavior, they are uh, they are expected um, under the law to report having witnessed that kind of behavior. So some states are extremely um, extremely rigid about their attitudes about it, and that's not going to change anytime soon. But in Colorado, um, we we're very laissez-faire about a lot of things here, which is really nice um, in so many ways. There's, I, I know a lot of people actually who are moving from New York to Denver uh-huh. um, because the vibe, they say, is especially like between Denver and Colorado Springs, I have tons of friends who are going or know or heard of friends of friends who are going because the vibe. Maybe it's the pot lies. <laughs> no idea. I wasn't going to mention that, but, people, but yeah, I mean, it's legal here. People were pretty freaking chill. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the, uh, the idea is, look, I just want to do my job. Smoke some pot without having to worry about it. Has it cha- has it changed Denver, or has it changed in your view? Has it changed Colorado all that much? Is I mean, obviously, you have apps now that can deliver weed to your door, but um, <laughs> some of the stuff that's changed is some of the old timers, like like middle middle aged people like me that grew up having to like go. Psst, Okay, what kind? You know, you'd be grateful for any kind of weed you got, and you wouldn't get fussy about it. Kids these days, with their food and their wine and their weed, they're experts on strains and they're experts on on cuisine. Uh, back in the in the eighties, when I late eighties, when I got to Denver after high school, um, I didn't know anybody else who knew what balsamic vinegar was. Um, and it was very difficult to find olive oil, except for at a specialty shop. Uh, a, 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 seriously, and now. Kids know how to make their own balsamic syrups with various kinds of flavors, and um, and that has extended to the weed industry. Where um, there's a friend of mine who is a gourmet chef, who works at a dispensary, and he tests out the strains for for their half the day. He's in the lab mode, and then the other half of the day he's in gourmet chef mode, and he makes a bunch of edibles. And the old timers will sit there. Somebody will hold out a cookie or a piece of candy of some kind, and unless you tell one of us old fuckers um, that it's candy. I, I held out some candy to a friend of mine and somebody that was under 30 immediately recognized it as candy. And a friend of mine that was my age did not recognize it as, as that kind of candy. He just reached out, grabbed a big chunk and stuck it in his mouth. And I was like, spit it out, spit it out, spit it out. And he was like, what, what? I'm like, dude, you are 400 pounds. I can't move you if you pass out, which is going to happen in two hours. And he's like, what? So I had to explain him that uh, he had just like stuck a whole 
big wad of THC that was going to be enough to choke a rhino and he needed to spit that shit out right now. And I told him, what you need to do is is take a size of, of a pea out of that chunk that you just ate and maybe have it once a week or something because I know that you will pass out. So um, they've got <laughs> the candy. I'm a, I'm a huge lightweight. Yeah, I'm a lightweight uh, too. Uh, and a, a, a few years ago, uh, someone made brownies and brought them over. We had a little, uh, we were having just a little get together here. Um, there were a bunch of, see, it wasn't a play party. It was just a, you know, few friends. Uh, I mean, they, all of our friends are in the scene, that's, but that's, uh, that's beside the point. So I had a half a brownie or whatever and saw it. My wife was like, oh shit. And <laughs> sure enough, I was, I was asleep or half awake. Dark side, I realized I hate dark side of the moon. <laughs> I've never really listened to it. I've just like, eh, whatever. I used to work at classic rock stations and, you know, not didn't really listen to it. I hate dark. So I was like, God, what is the, why? That would be like why? the worst things about being trapped in one of those comas where you're fully aware mentally. You can't yes. be physically. Yeah. That's yeah. It's like a, it's a Hitchcock right. nightmare or something. Yep. Um, so has, has pot changed the scene at all? Is it, uh, you know, you know, it, it, it hasn't had a big impact yet, but uh, we've had a, a pretty stringent no alcohol policy for most events um and house parties and things like that it's people tend to know not to play on alcohol but i just recently asked on uh on the fat life group for my own dungeon which uh, pavlovia is the name of my professional stuff for uh, for professional domination but the rack room is um R-A-C-K. It was a name that we picked when I was sharing the space with uh, or sharing the business with a few other partners. And we picked the most boring name that, that nobody would object to. Anyway, the rack room, I just had a, asked the question a month or so ago, like, so what does everybody think about playing on weed? Because the impact on your system is different than it is on alcohol. Um, I remember going to some all-women parties back in the late 90s where everybody seemed to be smoking pot and nobody had any kind of conversations about it. Um so I wasn't really sure, you know, is this something that we can talk about openly yet? We're still sort of used to not talking openly about pot and, and the idea is that you're supposed to play completely sober. But do we have any stories? Does anybody have anything anecdotal about bad things that have happened during scenes when they've been under the influence of marijuana? Um, nobody has really had anything like that happen. I've I've done some stupid scenes myself when I have had alcohol that I doesn't didn't realize was pure alcohol and I was doing fire play. Somebody was bringing me um, glasses of uh something blue that I thought was a mixed cocktail and I didn't realize it was pure vodka until later. Um, so I can tell my own stories of absolute stupidity based on uh, alcohol consumption and play, but uh, luckily nobody was hurt. <laughs> um, it's interesting that uh, in my own personal experience uh, with Sod and I, uh, when there's marijuana involved before play, it dramatically, two things happen. It decreases the more dangerous play, uh -huh. uh, but it increases the West Wing marathon watching. <laughs> dramatically, dramatically increases it. I've seen people do more uh, sensual play when I have suspected that they've been under the influence. If if I have just like a couple milligrams myself, I just, you know, I don't really have the energy to do anything super intense. Um, I can do fire play pretty safely because so much of that is just muscle memory for me at this point. I don't really have to think about the technical aspects of it. Um, so, so there's some things rope you can do, you know, as long as you're not doing suspensions, I, I 
And even that for a lot of people is muscle memory. Um, but still, I think it, it could be pretty risky because, you know, even people that I've seen with 20 or 30 years of experience with Shibari, I've seen people pass out in their ropes because, you know, they're they're having problems with their diaphragm or they're smokers and they haven't mentioned that or from their, they're from a lower altitude, which is that, that I think that, that's probably a bigger issue sometimes for playing uh, with people from lower altitudes than, than, uh, being under the influence of some kind of substances because there's a blood pressure issue involved and people will pass out pretty easily from having their, um, um, their circulation constricted. I never thought about that. How long does it take for someone to get used to that so they can play? That's just bizarre. I know. I just never thought um, about that, but it makes so much sense. We, whenever we have family or friends come visit, it's a, uh, if you're a little bit on the young and immature side, a fun game to play with tourists is uh, outdrink the tourist because your tolerance for alcohol is going to be a lot lower. Uh, you get drunk a lot faster here if you if you're not from around here um, or you don't live here. And people that live here, for I don't understand uh, physiologically how it works, but uh, you could drink somebody under the table that's that's a pretty hardcore alcoholic if they're from sea level. <laughs> It's, it's a mean trick to play, but so every now and then, if you just want to, you know, yank somebody's chain and or they're being arrogant pricks or something, you just take, hey, let's go have a couple drinks. <laughs> Are there any, any other aspects of play? Like, uh, just if, if you're at sea level, does fire play make any change? Is yeah. there any change in um, fire play? Somebody yeah. that I had given some fire play lessons to uh, went up uh, several, uh, several hundred feet higher and they contacted me to say that their 70% isopropyl wasn't staying lit and I couldn't figure out what that was about. And, uh, and yet there's, there's the way that, um, accelerants work at lower altitudes and, and different air pressures certainly does change. It totally makes sense. Um, I, I, I hate to do this. I, will you be, will you come back on the show again? Cause I'd love to talk to you again sure. sometime. Okay. Because there's so many more things uh, we've, we've, uh, I, unfortunately I have, to, uh, I have to talk to a client here for my <laughs> other job here soon, but uh, I guarantee you, I, I will be upset that I'm not having the same good conversation that I'm having now, because there's a ton of stuff that, uh, that we talked about beforehand of stuff that you're interested in that I'd love to have you back okay. on, um, uh, to talk about, because this has been really, really interesting and I've really enjoyed it. And well, I'm so glad. Much. I'm so glad that people uh, took the initiative to contact me to get you on the show. Um, yeah, that was cool, David. Uh, we'll we'll have links uh, to everywhere you are on uh, on the website massacast.com, and of course your websites as well will be there. And um, and every way someone can contact you. Thank you so much for doing this. It, award yourself with Lefsa. If I, if I couldn't, <laughs> a friend of mine is working on a gluten free Lefsa recipe for me. She keeps teasing me about that. Like, keep working on it. I have to have some. Oh man, what what would that be like? I don't know. I would I I, I think if she used if you use tapioca flour, that would probably give it that same kind of stretchy um, quality to it. Maybe. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. But you have to let me know how that works out. So, cool. um, thank you again for doing oh, this. Oh yeah, really it's been it. real great. Oh then. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to uh, Saskia. You can see everything, uh, all the contact info, how you can find Saskia on the website massacast.com. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.